This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. It is very exciting to hear Tom Hanks read a promo for NPR. That's because he's hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this week. That's the NPR News Quiz. So make sure to grab their podcast episode this weekend. All right, and here is our show, some of which, by the way, was ripped right from a radio broadcast we did on NPR late last night. That's why you'll hear us in our official radio personalities. Here's the show. (laughs) Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a recap of another huge day of political news. We'll talk about President-elect Donald Trump's first press conference in 167 days. We'll also cover the first day of Senate confirmation hearings for Rex Tillerson, Donald Trump's pick for Secretary of State. We'll also talk about the hearing for Senator Jeff Sessions, Trump's pick for Attorney General. A whole lot to talk about. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress for NPR. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, Donald Trump's pick for Editor-Correspondent. Have we confirmed that? <laughs> Thank you. Well, not yet Senate confirmed, so just 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 a nominee. Multiple news organizations are reporting. We are going to give you one hell of a hearing, Ron. <laughs> Tam, uh, you described yesterday as a news tsunami. The waves are still crashing today. Yeah, I feel like I'm still swimming or trying to swim, treading, treading water. All right, one thing at a time. Let's start with the Trump press conference. Uh, before we get into the play-by-play, let's do some quick takeaways around the table. Tamara, what jumped out to you from this? To me, it was that Donald Trump came out with his attorney and and talked about how he would attempt to separate himself from his business and avoid some of these conflicts of interest that there had been concerns about. And spoiler alert, concerns continue. Um, He's saying that he will turn the business over to his sons, that they won't do new international deals. There are a lot of details, uh, but good government folks are still nervous about it. So he's basically taking himself out of the day-to-day operations of the business, but retaining his financial stake. That's it. Okay, we'll get into that later. Uh, Ron, what's a headline that, that you heard? For me, it was Russia that was front and center. He talked a little bit about the hacking allegations that uh, were brought to him by the heads of the intelligence agencies of the United States. He said it was Russia. But then a little bit later, he said also that there were other countries that had been hacking us and people should have been upset about all the names that were stolen from the Office of Personnel Management, probably by China, he said. Of course, that didn't really have anything to do with the election. But he did acknowledge for the first time, really, that it was Russia that was trying to hack in and affect the election. Uh, But later on, he didn't want to answer a question about whether or not anyone in his own campaign or he himself had had any kind of contact with the Russians. But this was like the first time he actually acknowledged, yes, okay, it was Russia. The 300-pound guy in the New Jersey bedroom from the presidential debate is not a factor that Trump is is entertaining anymore. He's off the hook. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> good, good for that guy. Uh, Susan Davis, what about you? I, you know, for me, it was his comments on Obamacare. This is something we're obviously covering closely on Capitol Hill. And the president-elect made clear that Republicans will have their plan to repeal the health care law and replace it, in his words, essentially simultaneously. This is something we've heard from congressional leaders this week on Capitol Hill as well. It's sort of a clear reflection that Republicans were feeling a little political heat to be able to tell citizens what they were going to replace the health care with. And he said that we would see that plan shortly after his nominee for HHS Secretary Tom Price is confirmed. 
So more on all of that later, but we need to talk about the beginning of this press conference because it started kind of unusually. Uh, Before Trump spoke, future White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer took to the lectern and he ripped into the media. Two news outlets specifically for publishing stories about the fact that Trump and President Obama were briefed on unverified reports that Trump's team had colluded with Russia during the campaign. This document also claims that Russia had gathered compromising and embarrassing information about Trump. CNN reported this first. NPR and other outlets confirmed it. But unlike everybody else, BuzzFeed went ahead and published the unverified document with all these claims. Sean Spicer was not a fan of that move. For all the talk lately about fake news... This political witch hunt by some in the media is based on some of the most flimsy reporting and it's frankly shameful and disgraceful. With that, it is my honor to introduce the next Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. So there's applause there because there were supporters in the room at Trump Tower. So Spicer introduces Pence, who then introduces Trump. And Trump also criticized both BuzzFeed and CNN. Uh, So then um, the first question of substance was about Russia and those reports from yesterday, and also that Trump was told in his classified briefing about claims of Russian collusion on the part of his campaign. He said that's all fake news. Then Trump said this about Russian hacking during the election. As far as hacking, I think it was Russia, but I think we also get hacked by other countries and other people. And I can say that, you know, when, when we lost 22 million Uh, names and everything else that was hacked recently. They didn't make a big deal out of that. That was something that was extraordinary. That was probably China. Uh, We had we have much hacking going on. Trump's referring there to a breach that surfaced in 2015 at the Office of Personnel Management. So what do we make of Trump now acknowledging that Putin and Russia did play a role in this hacking? We We were joking about the 300 pound guy that Trump said could have been responsible. But this was something that Trump really pushed back on and not just pushed back on the claims, but also insulted intelligence agencies like the CIA. This is an acknowledgement by degrees, Scott. It's one step at a time. First, there's nothing to it at all. Not going to discuss it. All fake news. Then it's, well, all right, uh, the intelligence chiefs have briefed me on this. I've got some information, but I still know what I knew before, and it's greater and larger than what I've just been told. And so I'm going to go on, even though I will acknowledge that it was Russia, I'm going to go on with basically the same dismissive attitude towards it, Mm -hmm. saying things, among other things, that it was great to learn all that stuff that we got from WikiLeaks because of the Russian hacking. And there's a lot of motivations that Trump has for wanting to downplay either this intelligence itself or the implications of this intelligence. I mean, it's sort of complicated. You know, here here is someone who won an election and and no one serious in politics is saying that he didn't win. But he won this election and there's this sort of cloud that's been hanging over it of the hacking of the intelligence community saying with high confidence that Russia was meddling in the campaign, that Russia not only was working against Hillary Clinton, but that Russia came to favor Donald Trump. And, you know, he he won the uh, he did not win the popular vote. He did win the Electoral College. And and he has for a long time now been sort of trying to push back on anything that would say that he he isn't 100 percent president of the United States. So uh, an admission from Trump on the on the hacking claim. But the initial point of this press conference back when it was scheduled in mid-December before it was moved was Trump's business entanglements, what steps he was going to take to to take a step away from his large, complicated business while he's running the country. 
Trump did talk about that today, how he'd avoid conflicts of interest. Uh, and he took that opportunity uh, when he was talking about this to share that he'd been recently offered a business deal that he turned down. Over the weekend, I was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai with a very, very, very amazing man, a great, great developer from the Middle East, Hussein Demak, a friend of mine, great guy, and was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai, number of deals. And I turned it down. I didn't have to turn it down, because as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president, which is, I didn't know about that until about three months ago, but it's a nice thing to have. But I don't want to take advantage of something. Uh, I have something that others don't have. Vice President Pence also has it. I don't think he'll need it. I have a feeling he's not going to need it. But I have a no-conflict of interest provision as president. It was many, many years old. This is for presidents because they don't want presidents getting, I, I understand, they don't want presidents getting tangled up in minutia. They want a president to run the country. So I could actually run my business. I could actually run my business and run government at the same time. So, so what steps is Trump taking here since he mostly talked about the fact that he didn't have to take any steps? He is going to allow his sons to run his business instead of running it directly. And he has said he will not have communication with them about the running of that business. And the two sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, are going to be the Trump organization. And also, he's not going to do any more new deals overseas as he outlined, and uh, he is going to move on to being president of the United States. Now, we should say he's right about the law. It doesn't require him to comply as cabinet members and other people in the government must, but the assumption has been on the part of all the presidents since that law was passed that they were not above the law. They were simply exempted from it in its technicalities and it's subject to other sort of legal proceedings. Sue? He also made a really interesting pledge that he said certain profits that his his hotel organizations made that he would take that money or the Trump organization would take that money because he's recusing himself from those decisions. But they would take those funds and contrib contrib contribute them to pay down paying down the national debt. We should also mention the other Trump kid, right? Ivanka Trump. Mm -hmm. It was unclear today what role she is going to be playing. We do know her husband, Jared Kushner, is going to play an advisory role to the president. And she posted on Facebook today that she, at least in the short term, is just going to focus on getting their three children acclimated to Washington, D.C. But she is stepping away, they say, yes. she said, from her business uh, because she, Ivanka Trump, has her own brand. Yes, she has her own clothing line and her own brand, and she's also recusing herself from that. Tamara, getting back to the steps that Trump is taking, what do ethics experts, people who have worked in government, currently work in government, think Trump should do? So the head of the Office of Government Ethics came out today and, and delivered some remarks, and he described Trump's plan as meaningless, that, uh, you know, you can put your stuff in a trust, but it's not a blind trust. There's no way to have a blind trust with Trump Tower. You know what Trump Tower is. You, he knows what his son's businesses are doing. Uh, there will be, um, you know, news articles about what his sons are doing with his business. Um, and, and the other thing that, that he said, and this is Walter Schaub, he's the head of the Office of Government Ethics, he says, I don't think divestiture is too high a price to pay to be president of the United States. All right, we are going to have a little bit more on this after a break, but we need to step away for a moment first. You're listening to the team from the NPR Politics Podcast. 
with a recap of today's political news. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, still an editor correspondent. Stick with us for a whole lot more. Support for this podcast comes from Simply Safe, an award-winning home security company. Their system uses an arsenal of wireless sensors and has 24-7 professional monitoring. Plus, you pay by month and never get tricked into a long-term contract. Simply Safe has no installation costs and no hidden fees, so you can protect your home and family the smart way. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get $200 off the Simply Safe Defender package only if you go to simplysafenpr.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Rocket Mortgage provides a transparent online process that helps you understand your home loan. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the right mortgage solution. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com slash nprpolitics. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. We're back. You're listening to the team from the NPR Politics Podcast. We're talking about the big day of political news in Washington and New York. So uh, we talked about uh, the the steps that Trump says he's taking um, to deal with conflicts of interest, the fact that uh, experts in this field say he still needs to do a lot more to clear himself on this front. We talked about Russia. Another thing that came up at this uh, press conference was something that, that Susan Davis has been dominating the conversation at the Capitol, and that's Obamacare. What steps, when those steps should be taken to repeal the current system and uh, replace it with something else? What did Trump have to say about this? And where does this stand in Congress right now? His pledge was mostly on timing because we still don't really know what either replace or repeal is going to look like. But what was so interesting about Trump and when he said today where he pledged that they would offer uh, both a repeal and replace legislative package around the same time so people know exactly what the Republican alternative to health care is. It'll be repeal and replace. It will be essentially simultaneously. It will be various segments, you understand, but will most likely be on the same day or the same week, but probably the same day, could be the same hour. So we're going to do repeal and replace, very complicated stuff. And we're going to get a health bill passed. We're going to get health care taken care of in this country. But he also voiced support for what has been a democratic health care priority for the past 15 or so years, which is you know, authorizing the federal government or giving the federal government authority to negotiate drug prices. Uh, They're getting away with murder. Uh, Pharma. Pharma has a lot of lobbies, a lot of lobbyists and a lot of power. And there's very little bidding on drugs. We're the largest buyer of drugs in the world. And yet we don't bid properly. And we're going to start bidding. I'm going to save billions of dollars over a period of time. And we're going to do that with a lot of other industries. And this has been a pretty bright partisan line on the Hill. This was an issue in the early 2000s when they created the Medicare prescription drug program. And Republicans have really resisted giving the federal government that authority because they say the free market should set the prices and pharmaceutical companies should be able to set their own prices. And Trump coming out for this, where it may seem sort of like a small policy issue, really does test old 
partisan lines on an issue like this. And it was a reminder that Trump is not a traditional Republican president. And on some issues, he's really capable of blurring the lines. And if he were to pursue that, he would find a lot of Democratic allies in Congress. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see if if this moves forward, if he will find Republican allies on this issue um, and whether the pushback from the pharmaceutical industry will be what it has been every other time that this has come up. Already, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has said, oh, thank you so much, Donald Trump, for, for bringing up this idea that I've been passionate about for a really long time. Let, let's try let's try something on that. And Ron, what uh, is the political concern that Republicans have? G- going back to the broader issue of the timing of an Obamacare repeal, there there was a promise from the Trump administration that we're going to do this right away. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said this is the first order of business. And now we've seen a little hesitance. Why is that? Well, first of all, Donald Trump understands that he is to be the party leader. But the part of that he understands is leader much more than party. Mm -hmm. And so he says what he thinks about some of these policies. And he has said, for example, he thinks we ought to hang on to that part of Obamacare that says you cannot deny coverage because someone has an existing condition. And you cannot tell people that their kids can't stay on their policy until they're 26. So... That and the timing issue together have really given some Republicans pause. The timing, of course, is that the Republicans want to repeal on day one if they can, but they don't have a plan for replacement yet. And unless there's a bright, shiny machine hiding in the garage, they're not going to have one on day one after the inauguration. Yeah, one thing that did stand out to me from this is that uh, Trump was asked by a reporter uh, whether he wants the same number of people to be insured um, under whatever the replacement is as under Obamacare. And he didn't really answer that part of the question, but he did say that, you know, people will like what they come up with. But that is going to be a major question going forward. All right. We're going to shift gears now and uh, go down the Acela Corridor to Washington, D.C., where it was confirmations today. Uh, This was the second day of big confirmation hearings for Donald Trump's cabinet picks. First, for his Secretary of State nominee, Rex Tillerson. We've got Michelle Kellerman on the line. She covers the State Department for us. Michelle, you spent a lot of time of your life watching this uh, confirmation (laughs) hearing today, didn't you? It was all day from nine to six, basically, and lots and lots of questions. At least you could maybe get up or roll your eyes or respond, unlike Rex Tillerson, who had to keep that stone face on the whole time. He was pretty amazing with that stone face. Unflappable, I think. Uh, Can you just uh, catch us up to speed quickly on Rex Tillerson's background and and what he brought to this hearing before we get into what was said? Well, he's a a 64-year-old Texan, kind of plain talking guy. He spent his entire career at the... um, at ExxonMobil, starting as an engineer. He worked his way through the ranks to become the CEO. He's an Eagle Scout. That's something that all his supporters like to talk about. Um, And the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker, says Tillerson is someone who's very much in the mainstream of U.S. foreign policy. It's a term he kept using over and over again. But the, the real questions were about how does this guy who's spent his whole career looking at the world through the eyes of an oil man Um, doing deals with autocratic states, including uh, Russia. How does he become now a statesman and a diplomat representing U.S. interests, not just the interests of ExxonMobil? Well, um, I mean, that that's especially the case when it comes to Russia because of the, the major deals that Exxon put into place. They are deals that were partially put on pause because of sanctions uh, against Russia. It was really interesting how Tillerson uh, talked about Russia. Let's listen to a little bit of, of what he had to say at one point and, and then dig into the message he was trying to send today. Our NATO allies are right to be alarmed 
at a resurgent Russia. But it was in the absence of American leadership that this door was left open and unintended signals were sent. We backtracked on commitments we made to allies. We sent weak or mixed signals with red lines that turned into green lights. We did not recognize that Russia do not, does not think like we do. Words alone do not sweep away an uneven and at times contentious history between our two nations. But we need an open and frank dialogue with Russia regarding its ambitions so we know how to chart our own course. So Tillerson said a few things that Donald Trump himself has been reluctant to say. He acknowledged that Russia took Crimea illegally. He also said that climate change is real and he believes the U.S. should continue to engage in international talks on that issue. He also acknowledged Russian hacking. But he also talked about what Russia wants and how he might approach the ongoing conflict with Russia. I think the important conversation that we have to have with them is, does Russia want to now and forever be an adversary of the United States? Do you want this to get worse? Or does Russia desire a different relationship? We're not likely to ever be friends. I think, as others have noted, our value systems are starkly different. We do not hold the same values. Uh, but I also know the Russian people uh, because of having spent so many years uh, in Russia. There is scope to define a different relationship that can bring down the temperature around the conflicts we have today. And these, and Michelle, is, this uh, is Tam. Um, going into basically all of these hearings, it seems like the Democrats' goal has in part been to like draw out any, any space between the president-elect Donald Trump and his nominees. Um, were, were Democrats successful in doing that with Tillerson? Uh, on a lot of issues, in fact. I mean, on, on Russia in many ways. Um, he said he wouldn't walk away from the Iran deal, but would work through it. There were a whole lot of topics that Democrats and some Republicans even managed to get him to talk about uh, that he was a little different from Donald Trump. Democrats were, were um, kind of making pointed questions, but uh, one Republican specifically was as well, and that was Marco Rubio. Uh, it was really uh, he kind of had the hardest round of questions with Tillerson in, in the in the morning. Uh, let's let's listen to one part of that. And then I'm curious what you made of kind of Rubio trying to kind of get Tillerson to go farther than he wanted to go before in characterizing Putin. This was this was a point where where Rubio was asking Tillerson whether he believed that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin are responsible for the murder of journalists and political dissidents, many people who found themselves dead after criticizing Putin. Mr. Tillerson, do you believe uh, that Vladimir Putin and his cronies are responsible for ordering the murder of countless dissidents, journalists, and political opponents? I do not have sufficient information to make that claim. Are you aware that people who oppose Vladimir Putin wind up dead all over the world, poisoned, shot in the back of the head? And uh, do you think that was coincidental, or do you think that it is quite possible, or likely, as I believe, that they were part of an effort to murder his political opponents? Well, people who speak up for freedom in uh, regimes that are repressive are, are often at threat, and, and, this, and these things happen to them. Uh, in terms of assigning specific responsibilities, I would have to have more information. Hey, Michelle, this is Sue Davis. Um, you know, Rubio obviously questioned him pretty roughly, but Bob Corker, who's the chairman of the committee, came out this evening and said, Rex Tillerson has his support. He's going to vote for him. Is there any doubt that Tillerson has the votes he needs? And if there is, who should we be watching? 
Well, you know, it, it, it's hard to know at this point. I mean, Marco Rubio, it, it was a fascinating exchange because it wasn't just about Russia, but he also pressed him on um, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, in the Philippines, in China. And he said this is a time that America needs to have moral clarity in the world. Corker, at the end of the of the hearing, says, I understand there's some concern about moral clarity, but... You know, again, um, this is a guy who's in the mainstream and Donald Trump doesn't have a whole lot of experience on foreign policy and we need to get him in. Hey, Michelle, this is Ron. And my question is, aren't there some Democrats on the committee that are you know, pretty well accustomed to the idea of Tillerson getting the job and perhaps a little bit concerned about who might replace Tillerson if he weren't going to be the secretary of state? Other people that Donald Trump has flirted with as potential secretaries. Well, he, he had flirted with Corker, and I think most of the people on the committee really wanted that, but that was never um, going to happen. Um, I, I do think there's a, a sense that, you know, ExxonMobil is a huge organization. It's almost like a quasi-state. And I've also been, you know, I've been talking to a lot of uh, State Department people, and it's interesting because ExxonMobil hires former State Department people to offer advice. So he's also a guy who knows former diplomats and knows what the diplomatic corps can offer him in terms of advice. He he also talked a lot about how, look, I'm an engineer. I believe in facts. I work uh, on logic. So you you heard about a lot about that. So I do think that he's going to manage to get enough support in the Senate to to get through. Uh, so this was about Rex Tillerson, but but obviously like. I guess like most things in Washington these days, it's about Donald Trump as well. Oh, come on. Everything, everywhere (laughs) is all about Donald Trump these days. But, I mean, Tillerson was trying to talk about Russia in a certain way. And at the same time, you had Donald Trump talking about Russia as well. Let's just pause and hear uh, what Trump had to say about his relationship with Putin and how he views Russia. If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. Because we have a horrible relationship with Russia. Russia can help us fight ISIS, which, by the way, is number one tricky. I mean, if you look, this administration created ISIS by leaving at the wrong time. The void was created. ISIS was formed. If Putin likes Donald Trump, guess what, folks? That's called an asset, not a liability. Now, I don't know that I'm going to get along with Vladimir Putin. I hope I do, but there's a good chance I won't. And if I don't, do you honestly believe that Hillary would be tougher on Putin than me? Does anybody in this room really believe that? Give me a break. Okay. I mean, how many times today was Rex Tillerson answering for for things that Trump has said over the course of his campaign? Well, there was also this fascinating point with with Tim Kaine when Tim Kaine was saying, um, do you know whether there are financial connections between uh, Trump or his organization and the Kremlin? And uh, Tillerson said, I don't know that information. And he doesn't know that information on on many other countries. And Kaine suggested that, you know, perhaps he'll be sitting across the table with someone like Vladimir Putin or another leaders of other countries where he doesn't know whether or not Trump is going to benefit financially from any of the decisions or the negotiations that he's doing. Mm -hmm. So this is um, a a test case for everyone here. We don't know what the relationship's going to be like between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I suspect that there's going to be a lot of tensions over all the same issues that we've had tensions over, for instance, fighting ISIS, because that's not what Russia has been doing in Syria. Weren't there a number, this is Ron again, Michelle, weren't there a number of times when the question rose as to whether 
whether or not Rex Tillerson had discussed a particular issue specifically with Donald Trump? It doesn't seem like they have much of a relationship yet, to be honest, although he says that he has President-elect Trump's cell phone and that Trump actually answers it. And by the way, I heard Corker saying that recently, saying that they are very accessible. And Corker said that his number's blocked and Trump still picks up. So I guess if you got Trump's number, you can give him a call and he'll talk to you. I think that's basically (laughs) the lesson that we've learned in recent weeks. Uh, Michelle, we've got uh, just a little bit of time left, but anything else major that that stuck out to you from, from your marathon day listening to this confirmation hearing? Well, again, I think he he came across as a pretty steady hand. Uh, He wasn't bothered by the protesters that came in and out. Yeah, those those Uh, protesters were mostly focused on climate change, given the fact that Tillerson spent so long running ExxonMobil, one of the largest energy companies in the world. Uh, Michelle Kellerman, thanks so much for, for hanging out with us for a few minutes. Great to be here. All right, you are listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress for NPR. We'll be right back with a lot more. Support for NPR comes from Full Frontal with Samantha Bee on TBS. Rolling Stone describes Samantha as the best thing to happen to late-night TV. Fasten your TV belts and start your week with the political satire show people are talking about. Watch new episodes of Full Frontal with Samantha Bee Monday nights at 10.30, 9.30 Central on TBS. So we were just talking about the confirmation hearing for Rex Tillerson, who Trump wants to be Secretary of State. Today was also day two of hearings for Jeff Sessions, the Alabama senator who Trump has picked to be his attorney general. Uh, Sue, let's talk about Senator Cory Booker, New Jersey Democrat. He is Sessions' colleague in the Senate. But today he was at that hearing testifying against Sessions. That's right. And we should note that Jeff Sessions was not present for this. This day of hearings is sort of uh, maybe character witnesses is the best way to call it, where they have people speaking both for and against the nominee. And Cory Booker set a new precedent in the Senate as becoming the first sitting senator to testify against another sitting senator's cabinet nomination, breaking sort of the rules of the club, as the Senate is often referred to, where they extend extraordinary levels of collegiality to each other on these kinds of matters. Haven't those rules been kind of being chipped away at for a while now? There's a very good argument to (laughs) be made that a lot of those old rules are slowly being chipped away. And so he spoke out against Sessions' nomination, and his argument was broadly that while Sessions is a nice man and they have a good, you know, casual conversational relationship in the Senate, that his voting record is not one that Cory Booker believes will serve what Cory Booker believes should be the purpose of the next attorney general. And I believe we have a cut of Booker sort of outlining his opposition to Sessions. Senator Sessions has not demonstrated a commitment to a central requisite of the job, to aggressively pursue the congressional mandate of civil rights, equal rights, and justice for all of our citizens. In fact, at numerous times in his career, he has demonstrated a hostility towards these convictions and has worked to frustrate attempts to advance these ideals. If confirmed, Senator Sessions will be required to pursue justice for women, but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend the equal rights of gay and lesbian and transgender Americans, but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend voting rights, but his record indicates that he won't. He will be expected to defend the rights of immigrants and affirm their human dignity, but the record indicates that he won't. So so what in Jeff Sessions' record is Cory Booker referring to here? 
several things. In terms of his voting record, uh, Jeff Sessions has voted against things like the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, he has supported constitutional bans on gay marriage. He has opposed extending protections to gender orientation for uh, what, what would be considered hate crimes. And on the issues of criminal justice reform, he's sort of diametrically opposed to Cory Booker on a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. And and obvi- and Jeff Sessions, we should also say, was up for a nomination before he be- entered the Senate for a judgeship, and that was voted down over questions of his racial views in the past. And he just said simply that he does not believe that they share the same values. Yeah, it, Cory Booker is an interesting case. He is a relatively new senator. He is a mm-hmm. rising star of the Democratic Party. He was out there campaigning for other Democrats during the campaign. And a lot of people, uh, particularly people who are being critical of his choice to go against his Senate colleague, are saying, well, this was the opening speech of his campaign for president for 2020. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, these confirmation hearings are rich in political maneuverings in both parties. And of course, Cory Booker is a name that is listed in the orbit of people that could run for president one day. And the fact that he has only been in the Senate for three years, that he was willing to go up and criticize a senator who's been in the Senate for 20 plus years, 20-ish years. It was about Jeff Sessions, but it was also about Cory Booker today. (laughs) And uh, Booker was not the only uh, lawmaker testifying. Uh, Congressman John Lewis also testified, of course, a major figure in the civil rights movement, longtime Democratic senator, uh, Congressman. Congressman, rather. Uh, Let's hear a bit of what he had to say. We can pretend that the law is blind. We can pretend that it is evil-handed. But if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we are called upon daily by the people we represent to help them deal with unfairness in how the law is written and enforced. Those who are committed to equal justice in our society, wonder whether Senator Session called for law and order would mean today what it meant in Alabama when I was coming up back then. Susan Davis, we should also say there were defenders of Sessions mm-hmm. giving testimony today. Yes, the, the panel is uh, six all-black men, three spoke in favor, three spoke against. And we should say that the three that spoke in defense of Jeff Sessions all have worked with him, all spoke to his character. And one in particular, a man named William Smith, was a former counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he defended Jeff Sessions this way. After 20 years of knowing Senator Sessions, I have not seen the slightest evidence of racism because it does not exist. I know a racist when I see one, and I've seen more than one, but Jeff Sessions is not one. All right, uh, so so all of this, two long days of hearings, do we have a sense of how likely it is that Sessions is going to be confirmed? He is in good position to be confirmed. Nothing that came out in these two days of hearings seemed to suggest otherwise, although I am told that this is not a nomination that Democrats are likely to give consent to go on without a roll call vote. They're going to want to go on record for Jeff Sessions' nomination. So it's unlikely that this is a nomination that will be ready for President-elect Donald Trump when he takes the oath of office on day one. All right. We are going to zag again back to another topic. Uh, Going back to Donald Trump's press conference in New York today, we talked a lot of a lot of the major headlines, but there was one, you know, normally when there's a vacant Supreme Court seat and a a president is thinking about making a new pick, that is like the only thing in the headlines. But now it's certainly important, but there's so many other things going on. And this seat has stayed open for so long that at times it feels like it's kind of the back burner. But but Ron Elving, uh, Trump talked about his timeline for naming a Supreme Court nominee today. 
That's right. And he said two weeks, two weeks. That's mighty fast and it's not far away. He said he's still got a list of 20. Other people have been talking about that list having been pared down to four, possibly even as few as two. Donald Trump has every expectation that he will get additional choices for the Supreme Court if he serves four years. And that seems quite likely given the age and relative health of some of the other Supreme Court justices. Just to remind, this is the seat that Antonin Scalia vacated uh, upon his death last February. And President Obama tried to fill with Merrick Garland, chief justice from the circuit court here in the District of Columbia. And that nomination was ignored Mm -hmm. by the Senate. They did not ever have a hearing. They did not ever have a vote. And so now they have the reward for that, that the Republican majority was aiming toward, which is the chance to fill that seat themselves. It's kind of bad for them to spring a really uh, deep off point question at somebody live. But I feel confident with you more than other people that you might have the answer to this. Has any other president gone into office with an open Supreme Court seat to fill? Richard Nixon uh, came to office in 1969. Uh, knowing that he was going to get to appoint a chief justice uh, because Earl Warren was retiring. And, of course, he appointed Warren Burger as the new chief justice of the court. Uh, th- there have been probably other instances back through our history where a president had a very good idea he was going to get to have one right away. Okay, so, uh, so we've got a Supreme Court pick coming up. We've got uh, the big fight to repeal and possibly replace at the same time Obamacare. That'll all get it started. Uh, well, it continues, but but um, President-elect Trump will be sworn in a week from a little more than a week from now. We still have a lot happening between now and then. Uh, can we just kind of run through what's on tap in Congress over the next few days in terms of more hearings and big events that we're looking forward to? Sure, absolutely. Um, Thursday, tomorrow is another big day in the Senate. We're going to have three confirmation hearings. Uh, One is for James Mattis, who's the defense secretary nominee. At first, Congress needs to approve a waiver because there is a law that says if you've been serving in the military, you need a seven-year cooling off period before Mm -hmm. you can take that job. Mattis is expected to get that waiver, so this is a little bit uh, pro forma. We're also going to hear tomorrow from Ben Carson, one of Donald Trump's rivals in the 2016 campaign, who is now his uh, nominee for HUD secretary. Ben Carson, uh, as most listeners probably well know, is a neurosurgeon, and there's been some criticism around this nominee as he does not have any background in housing policy. So that could be an interesting one to watch. And Mike Pompeo is a congressman who is the nominee for CIA director, uh, who's been very well received, I would say, across the both parties. So he is in a good glide path to get that nomination hearing. But considering everything we've been talking about, about Russia and hacking and cybersecurity, it will be an interesting hearing to watch. Yeah, that's that is absolutely going to be fascinating because I mean, even just today at that press conference, Donald Trump again was very critical of the intelligence community, um, or, or sort of trying to balance between saying, "Well, I think Mike Pompeo will be great," but also then saying that the intelligence community did some very very bad things to him. Yeah, and I would say from other members of Congress I talked to who. You know, Donald Trump's comments do make them nervous sometimes. The pick of Mike Pompeo had a very soothing effect mm-hmm. on people that were concerned. He's been uh, he is described as being very studious, very hardworking. He was a member of the select committee that investigated uh, the Benghazi embassy attack. So he's very popular among a lot of Republican lawmakers. Um, but it will be really interesting to see. He's not been in Congress very long. So he's he's a new introduction to a lot of people. Before we get away from the confirmation process, Scott, just a quick note in terms of things that have happened in the past, we have not seen 
a cabinet pick turned away in a public way by a vote, say, in the Senate uh, since uh, John Tower in mm-hmm. 1989. Uh, that's quite a while. And we've been through several controversial administrations since then, had a lot of controversial cabinet picks. And a couple of times they have stepped back. They have said, OK, all right, I'm not going to get confirmed. I'll step back. So he bared 1993, Bill Clinton's first choice to be attorney general. And Tom Daschle was probably the biggest example from President Obama, right? That's right. In the first year of President Obama's presidency, he tried to make Tom Daschle his secretary of health and human services and to take over as Obamacare czar. And uh, that went down over some things that uh, Tom Daschle hadn't declared on his taxes. All right. We got a few minutes left here. And let's wrap by getting back to this press conference, because we were talking about this all day. And one thing that struck all of us was the fact that today really demonstrated how similar President Trump is going to be to candidate Trump. Yeah, you know, I uh, went back and watched the last press conference he had, which was back in July. And and it's very similar. The, the sort of uh, dashing from one topic to another and answering a single question, but then moving on to multiple different topics, um, sort of the, the grudges that uh, continue. You know, Donald Trump won. He is going to be president of the United States, but he's still criticizing Hillary Clinton, talking about her campaign manager or campaign chairman, saying saying things about her that he wouldn't he'd fire him if that was mm-hmm. it, it was it was totally the same Donald Trump. Susan, we uh, we, we end the podcast by talking about things we can't let go in the news. But Donald Trump like cannot let go the election at all. He's going to be president, but he still wants to talk about it at every opportunity on Twitter and and at events. He also brought up today, he sort of took a dig at Chuck Schumer when he was talking about getting the repeal and replace through Congress. And he he kind of made a criticism against him. Chuck Schumer is the new minority leader of the Senate. Although prior to this, there had been reports that Schumer and Trump actually have a pretty good relationship, that they're both, you know, New Yorkers and that they stylistically have some things in similarity. So that is going to be a really interesting... been calling him a clown on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they he's not going to give up taking on, I think in his words, the haters. Yeah. yeah he oh. actually tweeted about the haters yeah. not that long ago. Like uh, on New Year's Day, I think it was. It was Happy New Year to everyone, including the my haters and critics who are sore losers. Uh, I will note that Mark Hamill of Star Wars, who also plays the Joker in the Batman animated series, taped a version of reading that tweet in the voice of the Joker. That was something that was making the rounds online. But but <laughs> you would point that out. <laughs> Ron Elving, I mean, we've been living with Donald Trump, the candidate for seems like a couple of years now, year and a half now. What does this approach, this attitude, this way that he talks on social media, this way that he confronts people at press conferences, what does that do to the office of the presidency and the business the president is trying to get done when this is happening in the East Room, in the Oval Office? It will redefine the office, at least in terms of style. However, the office will begin to impose itself on Donald Trump and probably alter his style. Other presidents have come to office with a kind of attitude, I'm going to do all this differently. Jimmy Carter, to some degree, uh, Donald Trump will not be like Jimmy Carter in any respect. But Jimmy Carter thought he could do the presidency differently on his own terms, and the presidency ultimately went out. We'll see if Donald Trump's personality is strong enough to impose its will and its style on the presidency. 
I also think, you know, we should note as he prepares to take the oath of office next week that he is facing poll numbers that are at some of the lowest for any modern president on the eve of taking the office. Two polls out this week by Quinnipiac University and by the Pew Research Center give him in the high 30s. One is has him at a 39 percent approval rating. One has him at a 37 percent approval rating. Uh, this compares to Obama in 09 with a 68 percent approval rating on the mm-hmm. eve of taking office. George W. Bush had 59 percent. Bill Clinton had 58 percent. So the mood of the country is still very skeptical of Donald Trump. And while they are claiming a mandate in Congress and they are claiming that they have the ability to do a lot of things, he still has a lot of people to win over. Yeah. And while we're talking about polls, um, that same Pew poll finds that a majority of uh, of Americans remain concerned uh, about Donald Trump's potential conflicts of interest. That was taken shortly before this announcement. It's not clear what his announcement that he is going to turn the business over to his sons will do to that. But And also, Americans still want him to release his tax returns. The, the poll also Though he says, said today that yeah. they don't care. Yeah, he says he said today uh, that Americans don't care, only the media cares. Well, uh, <laughs> polling would indicate, and you know, he has a mixed record in believing polls. Um, <laughs> but he was blunt he about win. that. He said when they're good, he cites them. When they're bad, he he dismisses them. Right, and and polls would indicate that the American people actually do still want to see his tax returns. Yes, but that is not necessarily the same thing as saying that they care. Really, they would like to see his tax returns. They think he should release his tax returns. But his point, and I think it's well taken, is that they knew he had not released his tax returns on Election Day. They, not all of them, certainly, but enough for him to win the Electoral College, if not the popular vote, were still willing to vote for him. And that allows him, at least in his own mind, to say they don't care. Just just a minute or so left, but uh, we talked about all the things that have remained the same. Has anybody seen anything that's drastically changed in Donald Trump since he's become president-elect of the United States? There has been a consistency in the time of day that he tweets. That's true. Um, he, it, you know, I can sort of set my watch by a Donald Trump tweet coming sometime between around 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning. It's really gotten quite consistent, um, which would almost seem to indicate that it's it's not an accident. You know, Tam, you yourself can testify, getting off the campaign trail does wonders for keeping regular hours. <laughs> it actually does. <laughs> um, anything else that, that you're really looking to in the coming days or in the inauguration um, that, that, that you're curious about seeing, you know, will this be a sign of, of Trump taking one approach or another approach? I At the inaugural speech, I'm really looking to see if Donald Trump stays on message. He is so known to riff, even off prepared remarks. He doesn't like teleprompters. He doesn't like to feel scripted. And if there's ever a time to be scripted, it would be an inaugural address. Mm -hmm. But he's going to be a very different kind of president. And he is challenging norms in ways that we are still getting used to. So I'm really looking forward to his speech and how he approaches this historic task. And that will likely be the very biggest crowd he has ever given a speech to. Yeah. All right. That is a wrap for tonight. As of now, no plans to be back in your feed until next week. But if there's big news to discuss Thursday or Friday, we'll try. A reminder to support the podcast by supporting your local public radio station, because that helps us do our thing. It also helps them do their thing, covering the news in your community. You can go to npr.org stations to find your station and donate. That link is in the info of this podcast episode. Thanks to those of you who do email us. One of these days when news slows down a little bit, maybe it never will, but if it does, we'll do a new episode of Listener Mail. Until then, it's always really helpful to hear what you're curious about. All right, that's a wrap. 
I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress for NPR. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.